0: Read to him the
1: 29th scroll, sixth verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him, drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death.
0: Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast, Planet of the Apes Retrospective Series. My friends, I have convened this extraordinary meeting of the Council in order that I may report upon an action which I deemed necessary. Join Matt. You are a good and wise ape. Garrett. The human way is violence and death. And Adam.
1: The only thing they fear more than me is you apes.
0: As they travel through the spectrum of Earth and into the Forbidden Zone and consequently dissect the most primitive of all film franchises. My God, did we finally do it. From the Charlton Heston starring 1968 original. Take your stinking paws off me you damn dirty ape. To director Tim Burton's 2001 remake,
2: We've been searching for you for so long.
0: All the way through the latest entry, 2024's Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes.
1: I don't believe it.
0: The man will see, the man will do their opinions of how good or inferior each movie in the series truly is. He has a definite gift for mimicry. All coming up courtesy of Percolated Media. All of human history has
1: led to this moment. Planet of the Apes, released on April 3rd, 1968. Budget was $5.8 million, with a box office take of $33 million. And this was directed by Franklin J. Shafter. Welcome to the first official retrospective of 2024 here on Percolated Media. This is Goudreau here, and I'm back in the driver's seat. You know, I'm captaining this here expedition, and much like the characters in this movie, there's three of us that are going to be walking through the desert of length known as the Planet of the Apes franchise, and I'm joined by Garrett once again.
2: What's going on, gentlemen?
1: And Very Adam. first
2: time going through this world. Looking yeah. forward to it.
1: And Adam Bunch.
2: Hello, you damn dirty apes. I was wondering how long that would take.
1: Well, we got it out of the way earlier, so let's... <laughs> You know, for a franchise that's as prolific as Planet of the Apes has been, going on almost 50 years, it's almost shocking when you look at our catalog that this is something we've never done.
2: Yeah, especially considering we've had at least two or three come out since we've started this. And there were times when I thought about it, but I, I regaled on it. Because, quite frankly, with the majority of them, I haven't seen and I wasn't really knowing if I wanted to dive into this world. And plus, the new ones didn't really impress me at the time. And I haven't. I've seen Rise and just the buildups and everything for the other ones. I just didn't really impress me. So I needed a reason to do it. And I know we're getting a new one this year. And Matt, when you brought this up. I was like, you know what, let's go ahead and do it, because this is something that I was kind of scared to tread through. But I think since we're going on this expedition of our own with our own site, I figured, what the hell, let's go ahead and do it.
1: So we are doing it, and the real impetus, as Garrett mentioned, is there is a new one releasing this spring. It's kind of flown under the radar for a little while as far as hype, but there has been a trailer. So we know it's actually happening. It's one of those things to where now that you've seen the proof, we can actually commit to doing this. And when you look at this franchise in totality, as we'll talk about, it's kind of a a weird one for a lot of reasons. Number one is you talk about the length of time it's been around, coming up on 50 years, like I said. It's done something that very few franchises have ever done. You have an original franchise that had its run. You know, the original series was five films. Then it was rebooted almost 30 years later, to, let's say, not the best reception. That p- portion got canned. And then it's come back a second time to arguably the biggest reception it's ever had. That does not happen with these kind of properties.
2: Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And like like I mentioned back in our Ferrari show when we are building up to this series, I saw the Burton movie in theaters and I definitely have thoughts on it that I'll get to, but I thought that was going to launch another one. I didn't think that they would stop making them and then they wait 10 years and they do another remake and here we have a full fledged franchise once again. What are we, four films at this point with this Andy Circus set of films?
1: Yes, this new one is the fourth film in that continuity, wow. although it's taking place hundreds of years after the third one. So okay. it's, it's it's in that continuity, but I get the sense it's really going to be kind of its own thing. But speaking mm-hmm. of it's-, it's designed
0: to kick off a new trilogy so it looks like we'll have a sextet of the cgi
1: apes is i think what they're hoping for hmm. yeah and you know somewhere tim burton is kicking himself going man why me well, <laughs> he's, he's doing okay
0: Wilbur, the franchise That's killer
2: kill. what no well he, he's, he's got his own beetlejuice thing coming out i, I think he's going to be okay with wednesday as well you know i don't i don't think he's really looking back on the apes and saying oh, what could i have done that better could i have done that different i don't think he's a filmmaker who Who regales on his full filmography and holds his head and says, why did I do that? And and I'll get to my feelings on that film when we get to it. But it's just this is just one of those franchises that it does have a kind of a sore spot with me, because when I was in college, I did a full paper on the fact that Star Wars as a franchise had changed the toy makers forever because it it was what launched people wanting to go buy toys based on movies. (laughs) And then my professor Put a huge thing in the indent and said, you know, I had some really cool Planet of the Apes toys when I was a kid. This paper, it doesn't hold much water. (laughs) So that I kind of had a bitter taste in my mouth when I got that. And so it was just it's just this is just one of those things that I had no idea how big this franchise was. I had no idea that when our parents were in their twenties, and by the way, my mom and dad did see this in theaters, my mom revealed to me, this particular film, how big
1: it was. I mean, this is huge. It was, in some ways, the precursor to Star Wars as far as the merchandising and the overall popularity, because there was a period where this was a mainstay at Drive-In's, where they would play, like, all five in a row, and it was a whole kind of phenomenon, but Adam, I'll go to you, because you're big into science fiction, much like I am. Was this something you ever had an affinity for?
0: Never was, for no good or bad reason. I know my father had seen it, even if my grandfather had talked about it. And until the Tim Burton movie came out, which we'll discuss in a couple weeks, I hadn't seen any of these. So I'm a complete newbie, even though I know of the franchise – which it's kind of hard not to know about it if you're into sci-fi at all. I know, you know, the little moments, every meme before there was a meme, everything that's been made fun of, whether it's Charlton Heston's acting or just little phrases and words, so I'm aware of it, but I had never watched this series. And by the time that I was so deep into heady sci-fi, this seemed, my opinion was, oh, that's just going to be schlock. And I'll say, we'll find out whether or not that opinion holds up, when i finally got to watch this first one but i can't believe it's taken me 44 held them 45 years to finally sit and watch this film
2: I like that it took you two times to remember how old you are. That's how you know you're getting old. Uh, the one thing I really knew, Matt, was, of course, the famous line that we've already displayed at the beginning of this, and, of course, I have in the outro to this, because that's the way I am. And the other bit of trivia was I knew that Rod Serling had written this original script, and that was appealing to me, because Rod Serling is one of my heroes. When I was working in the film business, like I would really study Twilight Zone episodes, and really want to write in that style. That was interesting to me. You know, there are a lot of cool things that once I dove into a lot of the trivia and things and I actually read a whole bunch about this leading up to this that are really really fascinating to think about because it really did change movies for the better. It showed that you could franchise something. You could take something as quote-unquote primitive as this concept and make it into something that is viable and will make money every time it comes out. Because let's not forget, if you didn't have those toys, you didn't see this in movies originally, there were no videotapes to go back to back in the 60s and 70s. And so I think that's that's a lot of the reason why this is as big as it was.
1: Yes, we'll, we'll talk about Rod Serling's involvement because he is an integral part of this movie for sure. But as far as me, because I did not grow up on this property. When I think of science fiction as a kid, I was I was a Star Trek kid. This is kind of a brother to Star Trek in a lot of ways because or a distant cousin mm-hmm. in the evolutionary chain because they started roughly around the same time. Had their ebbs and flows and much like Star Trek it's come back in a multitude of ways and it's kind of the much like Star Trek the the flag bearer for science fiction in movies. You know, this is true authentic science fiction in almost every respect. But I did not really watch these, and I I never even saw the Tim Burton movie in theaters. I didn't care. But when the the new films were coming out, I also didn't care, despite the fact that I was not against rebooting it because the the Burton film is what it is. But I'll I'll save my thoughts on those films when we get to them. But I've seen them all, but I wouldn't call it one of my favorite franchises necessarily when you look at it in, in totality that makes sense but i think it's kind of deserving of its place i mean look at the fact that how many franchises can say they they shit the bed on a reboot and then came back arguably better than ever
2: yeah that's definitely truth you mentioned star trek it's really funny because the guy who worked on the makeup for this did the ears for spock (laughs) in the original star trek show which i thought was an interesting bit of trivia when we thought about doing this series and i started looking at you know a lot of the thing that really made this thing go i mean you're right i think the viability of star trek is really what kind of helped launch this and let's not forget too this was also coming out the time you know in the 60s which is when bond started so it's amazing that we have two big franchises that started in the 60s we haven't had a new bond film in a few years but they're still around
1: yeah it's also you know this was the same year as night of the living dead which kind of put, zomb- yeah. put zombies into people's brains you know this kind of like everyone knows what monkeys are of course But I I think this kind of put authenticity and prestige on science fiction, which for a large portion of the 50s, they were B-movies. They were Mm -hmm. low budget. They were really hokey with a couple of outliers. You know, you have your Day the Earth Stood Still type of films, which really are great, transcendent in their own right. But you have a lot of schlock, let's be frank, like you do with a lot of genres. But this was big name director, big name star, a very respected cast, and a writer who had tremendous success on The Twilight Zone. So there was a lot of punching power in this movie, and audiences responded to it. I mean, it was a box office hit for the time.
2: Yeah, like I mentioned, my parents saw this in theaters. The themes that are brought up in this, we'll we'll get into it, but this movie, in a lot of ways, is you say there's a lot of primitive sci-fi around this time. This was way ahead of its time.
1: We're going to talk about some horror, because this movie started from a book of all places. I'm not not even going to try to pronounce the author's name. I know it's Pierre Bouel. That's about as close as I'm going to get. Same guy who wrote Bridge Over the River Kwai* of all things, which was turned into a movie, wrote the book, and almost immediately, the book was brought to the attention of film producers, specifically Arthur Jacobs, and he had said something along the lines of, I wish King Kong had been made so I could make it, because both involve primates on some capacity. So he bought the rights, and it was a good three-year process where they were trying to persuade people to take the movie rod sterling got involved at a very early point obviously people know who he is the twilight zone night gallery transcendent science fiction writer the book is considerably different than the movie specifically the book is a futuristic ape society where they drive hover cars and use jetpacks and it's much more of the like jetsons type of future
2: And didn't Serling kind of write to that? Didn't he kind of write it? And then producers looked at it like, you know what? This budget is not, (laughs) we
1: cannot do this budget. Exactly. (laughs) They originally tried it with that in mind, but they did not have the biggest of budgets. I mean, look, $5 million for a production is a considerable chunk of change for a movie, especially in
2: 1968.
1: Absolutely. But Serling said, you know what? It's, it's not really working with this. So let's do a more primitive type of future or society where the apes are living in central america style huts and villas and we can do location shooting in the deserts of california and down south so give it a shot change the ending which we'll talk about in fact the entire conceit and reveal of the movie is drastically different than the book now have you read the book i have not what i know of it is from reading like a, a little article about key differences between the book versus the movie Mm -mm. And I do know that in the book, there's more about the ape society, like they're sorted into classes where the orangutans are the politicians, the chimps are the scientists, gorillas are the cops. They mentioned in the book that it was more of like human complacency that caused the apes to take over, which is not translated into the movie. Certainly there's much more of a point. But once that change was made, the question was, okay, who do we get to direct and star? They got Charlton Heston who was sort of the embodiment of what you think of a movie star at that time. Mm -hmm. Blonde hair, barrel-chested, starred in, like, the Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur, like these giant historical Mm -hmm. epics. So you talk about adding legitimacy to a science fiction movie. That was certainly a good way to get butts in the seats. And it was Heston who recommended Franklin J. Schaffner, Excellent director. You know, this is the guy who will make Patton a couple of years after this. Yeah. He, he did Papillon after this. So when you look at some of the directors who did this original franchise, they got very skilled filmmakers to tackle these movies. We'll definitely talk about that with the sequels to come.
2: And you got to think about it. Like you said, I mean, science fiction around this time was not taken serious. It would be another nine years before Star Wars would come around. And you get somebody like Charlton Heston, and we talked about this with Superman and Brando. It automatically lends credibility to your project. And kudos to author Jacobs for... Pulling that, cue, that coup, because it could not have been easy. You know, I've seen Heston in interviews say, well, I didn't really like the book, but I sure liked the script. So he probably had to do a lot of they had to do a lot of convincing to get him on this thing. And kudos to them, because that as, as somebody who has worked as a producer, it is not easy to do.
1: The big things they kept with the new version. And if you're curious about the old version, there's footage of Edward G. Robinson playing Dr. Zeus where he's doing a screen test with Charlton Heston where it's more of that futuristic type of society. So there, there was a point where they were going to run with that, but they lowered the budget. They brought on Michael Wilson, who was actually the person who adapted Bridge Over the River Kwai to rework Serling's script. As I mentioned, they changed a lot of the setting, but they kept the Cold War themes and they kept Serling's new ending. They also hired, I think, the MVP of this production, John Chambers, to do the makeup effects. If you've ever seen mm. the movie Argo, this is the character, this is the person that John Goodman played. So he, he was basically the guy who, you know, made the mission possible masks in real life. Yeah, he
2: did that. And he, he did some kind of mask for World War II, too. I can't remember exactly what I, I saw on that. But this guy was a genius in so many ways. Another big coup was getting him. Because if you've seen the initial makeup tests of these, it's it looks more like, you know, when you're a kid and your mom turns you into a werewolf for Halloween and she pastes fur from wigs onto your face. That's what it looked like. Like, they did not look like real monkeys. And the the magic this guy pulls off on this, they had to do a new Academy Award for it because at the time there was no makeup effects Academy Award. That wouldn't really come until the Elephant Man came out. And they did a special one for that, and then The Fly got it. But this was a huge cue, and god damn. I mean, the, these still to this day, you look at them, and there are little tiny things here and there that you can spot, but not much. In 1968, in the desert of all places, god damn, what a fucking work of art these makeup effects are.
1: And speaking of work of art, this is a movie that launched a franchise. It launched certain... I mean, look, the the ending, is it fair to say, like, this is the most famous twist ending in cinema history?
0: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, that was one thing, too, and it's one of the reasons I'd never bothered to see It's like, well, I know how it ends, but I'll say, well, I'll save stuff for later, but knowing the ending doesn't ruin the movie. But, yeah, I think by far it's been the most spoofed, the most imitated, the most made fun of. It's just... it exists because everybody knows it.
2: And the only reason I knew about it, because I mentioned before, I saw Spaceballs. <laughs> and the ending <laughs> to that is, is very similar. And, uh, that's the only reason I knew about this. And of course, Burton has his own twist on it, too, which we'll get to. But this was, yeah, this is very, very famous. And just, oh, I couldn't imagine being in a theater and seeing that and saying and just talking about it on the way home and whatnot. And goddamn, it made me want to see it again just to lead up to that moment.
1: It's funny you mentioned Spaceballs. That is, I mean, this this ending has been parodied by, you know, that. The Simpsons did it. A- everyone and their mother knows it, but I, I still think Spaceballs has the funniest punchline with, oh, shit, there goes the planet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, I don't even think that movie's all that funny, but that sequence. Yeah, that's the that best joke in the movie, It's very for sure. funny. It's even better than the alien one that they did earlier, oh, yeah, you the, know, in that, the alien in that same movie. film. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny, the best parts of that movie are the stuff that, does not parody Star Wars in a Star Wars Wars parody. (laughs) And and yeah, speaking of parodies, like, everyone knows the ending, everyone knows the line. Uh, Several lines, actually, in this movie are are tremendously quotable. But is the movie worth its reputation? That's that's the question. Especially, and we've had conversations about doing older movies. You know, we did the Bond franchise. We did. Yeah. We did the Thing from Another World, for God's sake. We did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We've done older
2: films. And I, and I want to do the Living Dead series eventually. I definitely want to dive into that. I know I did it at the old place, but I want to do it again with different visions, different eyes, different experiences and whatnot. And again, I mean, you got to do films like this because a lot of people think that when you do older films like this, and Matt, I think you've brought this up in the past when we talked about The Exorcist, it's like doing movie homework. I don't want to make it seem like homework. You know, I want it to seem viable. And again, we had a great reason to do it because there's a new one coming out, but I did eventually want to get to it because I think, the way it revolutionized film cannot be overlooked.
1: No, and, and I've, I've always championed, you have to understand the past to have a better appreciation for a contemporary movie. This is the blueprint for a lot of writers, uh, for people into sci-fi, for makeup artists. This is something that's heralded as their inspiration for getting into that line of work. So I think it's appropriate that we actually do this franchise in, in detail. To the surprise of no one, though, if you have never listened to one of these retrospectives, we do spoil the entire movie. Although, as we mentioned, this ending is so well known that it's not even a surprise anymore.
2: If you don't know the ending, what the hell are you doing listening to this podcast? Yeah, th- that's, that's,
1: yeah that's like that's like the people who don't know the ending of the. It's like the Sixth Sense for that time. Yeah, that, that time period. Good <laughs> comparison. And it's not a surprise because Rod Serling. This really is, and this is how I sum- summarize the movie. It is a two-hour Twilight Zone episode. Sure right down to he had endings. I think in the Burgess Meredith episode, I mean, there's several, but there's the one where he's the librarian. Oh yeah. Uh, yep, you know, absolutely. A lot of parallels to that, but let, let's get into the movie. Cause okay. there's certainly a lot to unpack. We're going to peel this movie like a banana. So we open in <laughs> the regions of deep space where we see a group of astronauts, three of them in hypersleep, but we're hearing the monologue of our main star Taylor played by Charlton Heston. As we mentioned, big star at the time and this kick-started his trilogy of sci-fi movies because he did this then he did the omega man then he did soylent green which yeah. you know soylent green mm-hmm. is much like Planet of the apes where everyone knows that as well mm-hmm.
0: but it was the big shift from what you said those big historical sword and sandals type movies into a big heady sci-fi for heston
1: so taylor's mentioning that they're on a light speed space voyage to discover uncharted territory Right off the bat, he comes off as a very misanthropic type of character where he talks about, Definitely. you know, his desire to discover. He says later on, like, I want to discover something better than man. Cause Star Trek is the optimistic future science fiction around this time where it's all about brave new worlds, discovering new civilizations, but not in the name of like colonization or mm-hmm. conquering. It's aspirational science fiction. Whereas this, his, worldview is all about humanity sucks and we owe it to find something better and it's ego driven for at least two of the scientists where they mentioned yeah he's like you're doing this for the fame and for a bronze statue so it's it's definitely the antithesis of a lot of science fiction around this time
2: yeah and let's get to the, the obvious comparison out of the way too this was made five years after 2001 right wasn't 2001 made in 1963 i want to say no it was the same year um,
1: same year as this that's really ins- that's insane when you think about it that is insane because i mean
2: the evolution shown in that movie really mirrors what charlton Heston go through in this movie we're starting off on the ship as opposed to on the planet which you know it it inverts itself in 2001, but I found that comparison too. That here we are in once again clean sci-fi. You know, uh, clean sci-fi. It wouldn't be dirty sci-fi until Star Wars came around and dirtied up the ships and whatnot. But I, I, I found that an interesting comparison as I was watching this movie.
0: You know, what it felt to me is I was like, man, I could see where Ridley Scott got so much of the alien thought for this mm-hmm. type of hyper sleep. And they're, they're going to sleep for 1300 years. So take that Ripley, uh, but it just feels like that, you know, we're, we're going to sleep. We're going to do this and that more aliens than alien because they're just truckers in that first brilliant film. But it's just like, man, I wasn't expecting it to be, I don't know, thoughtful right off the bat. But I got to say, compared to how the rest of it goes later on, this looks like I'm watching Lost in Space on TV for how some of this looks. But I'm still captivated right off the bat. And then I didn't know about Rod Serling, so that blew me away. And I sure didn't know about Jerry Goldsmith. So I'm looking at the credits going through, and I'm just like, holy shit, I can't believe everybody that's attached to this.
1: Yes, isn't it incredible? Speaking of Star Trek, yeah.
2: Isn't it incredible that out of everything in this movie, the stuff that is least believable is the stuff on the ship? <laughs> like, right? you, you mentioned the, pr- the primitive effects on this ship. If I was watching this in a the theater, I would say, OK, well, this does not look very good. And then once, of course, once we get on the planet and we see all the makeup effects and things and what they've built, it, you're amazed. But at this point, yeah, you're right. You're like, OK, uh, this is does not look like they're more than five feet off the ground.
1: I will say this has a lot in common with the effect that the wizard of Oz does when it goes from black and white to color.
2: Oh yeah. Good, good comparison. So
1: this is, yeah. it's kind of doing that where I'm not going to call this shoddy or anything because there's a lot of really great camera work in a couple minutes when the ship is crashing and, and things like that. But yeah, lost of space is a good comparison, but I mean, that still looks better than the one that came out in the nineties. So much like alien, you know, they all go to hypersleep in these pods, but they're, awoken by the ship crashing on an uncharted planet where they land smack dab in the middle of the water and they're horrified to see that they're one lone female who they openly say is there to be impregnated mm, um, the broodmare like that's wild yeah like they literally use the Adam and Eve comparison directly she looks like the woman from Mario Baba's Black Sunday where she's like she's aged considerably <laughs> and, is, and is dead <laughs> Meanwhile, the three of them have only aged like one year, approximately.
0: Yep, nothing but a beard, and the beards aren't even gray; they're just nice, yeah. and drawn beards after a thousand years.
1: Yeah, well, he says you have a touch of gray, but it looks like when you put when you buy the product at CVS and just put it in, in your beard to look less old. But <laughs> one of the things about this movie that I think defines it is contrast, and it starts right here with the chaotic nature of the ship being filled with water, and you know they're trying to get out, but when I don't know if it's, I think it's Dodge goes up into the surface. It's quiet. It's absolutely quiet, borderline desolate. And I think that's something that runs throughout this entire movie.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, the crash is remarkably done. Like you said, Matt, you already mentioned, but, but this, the shots and stuff in this crash are really cool. And this was filmed like right outside Utah, I believe it's like between Utah and Arizona. They They went to various places. I mean, we always mention it, but no CGI. And this ship sticking out of the water like this, another iconic image that I do remember seeing storyboards of and things before I even watched the movie. It's even better on screen. Just amazing.
1: It still holds up. We always talk about how so many of these older movies, their practicality outlives so much of modern CGI. I mean, look at what computer effects have become in just the last decade you know 2013 versus now Mm -hmm. we're talking about a movie that came out in the late 60s that is still a benchmark in practical effects and prosthetic makeup it's funny because i think a planet of the apes in the same way of the original star wars trilogy when you look at the practical work in those although i will say once we get to it i do think the, the new planet of the apes movies are pioneering with motion capture in the same way that the prequels were for visual effects
2: Adam, you've always been a champion of storyboards and practicality. Uh, were you impressed by the opening moments of this?
0: I was, and I think that it, it does a really nice job of just bringing you into it. And you yeah, have the practicals and, and the setup. And if you don't know the story, there's no way you know what's going on. So I'm trying to remove myself from knowing it. And I just imagine sitting there in the theater and just the anticipation and the wondering and the, oh, my God, where are they? What's going on? Nowadays, everything that we're seeing is a trope, but it would mm-hmm. not have been 55 years ago, and I think that's important to realize.
1: Well, it's also a great misdirect because for a movie called The Planet of the Apes, first 30 minutes of this movie is setting you up for, like, a survivalist type of movie where they're, mm-hmm. they're just, you know, wandering the desert trying to survive look, yeah. and look for rescue. This movie does not start in the way that you think a movie of this ilk would. I think that's intentional in a lot of ways, because so much of this movie's power is in its reveals and revelations. If you did it in the immediacy of the first 10 minutes, it'd be impressive, but I don't think it would have the, the impact that the movie has if you did it in, like, the first 10, 15 minutes.
2: That was something that really hit me as I was watching this, because, of course, everybody knows Plenty of the Apes. I mean, even... If you go to the theaters, you know you're going to go to a planet full of apes. But when he crash lands on this, they don't appear for, what, like the first
1: 20, 25 minutes, something like that. to 30, because, as we'll talk about, the apes are not the first civilization they see.
2: No, for sure. And so I'm waiting for the society and everything to show up. No, it doesn't happen for quite a while. And that is a brilliant work of pacing. I don't know if that was done by Serling. I know Serling, as you mentioned jumped off this project pretty early or uh, Michael Wilson who jumped on to do a lot of the rewrites and things I don't know whose work that was or if it was actually director Schaefer pacing it himself but the pacing of this movie is remarkable
1: so they get out of the ship to the you know because these guys are very sardonic where you have the guy who's like going going gone as he watches the, the ship sink so they're on this life raft they look through their supplies they realize they've got about three days worth of water and food and ammunition to survive So they set off on a trek to discover some form of civilization. And right away, to continue off what the opening monologue establishes, these guys are not very fond of the human race. To the point where Taylor openly mocks Landon putting the little American flag on a piece of rock, echoing like the moon landing, which was around this time. And I gotta say, this movie's great for, if you're a fan of reaction GIFs, on Facebook or <laughs> any form of social media, Charlton Heston's got about five of them.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I would say more. I mean,
1: he's got a lot of good ones.
2: Are we talking about Charlton Heston? Are we talking about how he does in this? Yeah, let's talk can about we, that because
1: he's the um, he's the anchor of this movie. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to call his performance divisive, but there are some people who, in retrospect, look at it as, I don't want to call it hokey, but it's got its detractors. Well, as you mentioned,
2: at this point, he had done a lot of these sandal movies and he had gotten a lot of respect in the Ten Commandments. And he was a really well-respected actor. And this is kind of looked at as him, I would imagine, as him kind of slumming it. And I have seen things, too, where people say he mailed it in for this. This is way before, you know, he kind of became a parody. And, you know, he was more a symbol of the NRA than he was looked at as a brilliant actor. I wouldn't call him brilliant here but I do like his performance. I like the gruffness of him. You know, there are points in this movie. I mean, we'll mention, but the, shooting conditions on this were not fun here they are on the desert charlton heston's running around barefoot these apes are in freaking makeup in 110 120 degree heat it just could not have been fun to film and i think you feel that on the screen and it, and it works to the to the movie's benefit particularly heston you know heston looks annoyed in this movie which is a good thing he probably was and it works because of the conditions he finds himself in when he crash lands on this planet i like his performance i like what he does i don't know how many sequels he's in nobody's saying. anything. Anything, but I, I enjoy him in this first movie. I think he, you know, he mentioned he didn't like the novel, but he sure as hell loved the script. And I think he is trying to bring what he can to this. And it works for me.
0: And for me, this is the Charlton Heston that I know, almost a parody. So and, and like I say almost, you know, it's not completely, but you get that from here on, that's what he would pretty much get hired for would be to almost emulate and and copy what's going on here so he's everything not not everything but he goes from mid to over the top and i don't mean a mid quality performance i mean he keeps it kind of a a controlled timber or over the top so there's not a lot of range kind of a two-speed bicycle that he's got going on but he brings kind of you know as you brought up Garrett, you know as like Brando did with Superman. Is Brando great? Some people think that he's absolutely amazing and sets the tone for the film. But let's be honest, he he was miserable. He did it for the paycheck. He was a you know grumpy miserable old man and you, you were the first to point th- that out on that on those podcasts by the way you did
2: point that out when we did that
0: series <laughs> and you kind of get that with heston you know sometimes i feel like he does not want to be here and he probably just was open to spend some days with a bunch of chicks in the desert is <laughs> you know i get that
1: feeling <laughs> so i it's hard for me to distinguish this performance from soylent green because they're almost identical I mean, right down to the the, the ending is basically the same type of (laughs) breaking point. But I like how his performance kind of modulates as the movie goes on, because he has to do a lot later on where he can't speak. So he has to be very over the top with his body language and his facial expressions. You're also watching a character who is both proven right about what he believes and then also proven horribly wrong. And I think that capitulation shows here. I think it's the right kind of elevated performance, is the word I'd describe it. Because, you know, you look at this versus Shatner and Star Trek. If you swapped them, it would work in Heston's case, but you put Shatner in this movie, it does not work. Um, That's when it would become a farce. Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It would become borderline parody. So yep. I think I think he's good here. But, you know, this is the, to Adam's point, I don't watch the, the Ben-Hurs and the greatest shows on Earth because... I don't have four hours of my time to devote to those, and the second movie is probably the worst movie to ever win Best Picture. I want to talk about the Omega Man at some point because that retrospective, all the adaptations of I Am Legend. He definitely, I want to go those. Would be fun. He was also important because he was a very vocal advocate for the civil rights movement in and of itself, Mm -hmm. Uh, at a time where a lot of big stars were not putting themselves out there because. Heston's political views changed drastically once you got to the 80s. You know, He was a founding member of the NRA. He backed Reagan considerably, but in the 60s he was a staunch liberal. I mean, this movie's not subtle with what it's saying by any stretch of the imagination, but having him as the the representation sort of bridges the line between science fiction and reality as well to illustrate the points that the movie is making. So they're walking around, and Taylor estimates that they're about... 2,006 years after they left in 1972. They're walking around, you know, the desert. It sort of looks like, uh, you know, what you'd see in Last Crusade when they're going towards the... Uh, <laughs> the where the Holy Grail's being kept. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like that. But no civilization. You know, they don't run into any animals. They The one sign of life they find is a little tree growing in the ground, which... Look at that desert. You really think they'd find something like that? <laughs> <laughs> like that's where my Boy Scout flag was going off. Going, I don't, I don't. That's the most unrealistic thing in this movie. <laughs> they eventually find a spring. In a G-rated movie, there is almost full frontal nudity. Yeah, yeah I was surprised was, at that. Yeah, leave my piece. I'll say at that. But you know, this movie is. You know, you see the rating G. You think of Disney. You think of wholesome entertainment, but you see a G on the context of this movie, and you know there's nudity. It's considerably more violent than you think this movie would be. As we'll see later mm-hmm. on, like, I think this is a movie G and that everyone should see it. But not like I'd show my four year old this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they, they go in. They also come across some scarecrow like figures that look like something straight out of Children of the Corn. <laughs> Interesting that they grew this whole freaking
2: field for this one scene. And it was supposed to get up to six and it ended up getting up to eight feet. And you know what I thought of Matt when we talked about Lost World was that horrible scene when they're going through and they're getting hunted? (laughs) Oh god. Yeah. I think this might be Spielberg that might be Spielberg's tribute to this. I I think this is and we're gonna see a lot of corn this year, (laughs) as both of my colleagues know. And I I enjoyed this. I I thought this was this was pretty cool. Well,
1: I like the foreboding the the foreboding nature of these scarecrows where you don't know what they mean. You don't know like who planted them, but you get the sense that it does confirm their civilization, but you don't know to what degree, and they don't know to what degree. Yeah.
0: At this point, don't know the who, the what, or anything about this. So it's it's almost got a horror element to it that way. And it's, it yeah, really neat.
1: And horror and science fiction a lot of times are connected. Obviously, Alien's going to run with that a decade from now. But, you know, you think of movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, that was a universal monster movie that was much more science fiction oriented and something like dracula which is pure fantasy i don't just say that because i thought the creature from the black lagoon was going to come out of this this lake (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but while they're swimming their clothes get stolen you don't know who took it exactly could be gremlins for all you know and they find basically shreds so you think animals like the titular apes you know these these savage monsters ripped up their clothes and but that's ultimately not what we find out 30 minutes in they stumble upon a field of not apes, but humans, although they're not the humans that they're accustomed to. They notice that they're borderline Neanderthal-ish. They are borderline Neanderthalish. they can not speak. you know, not very eloquent. And the astronauts, you know, think that they can be the, the top of the food chain in six months, I think is the line that he says.
0: This goes right back to, like, the hubris right off the bat. Everything they're doing is not for altruistic means. I mean, there's some of that there. And I like that part of just the dirty science fiction. Definitely.
1: Yeah. They shift from, you know, the altruism of we're here to find new life and come up with discovery to, oh, we're going to be running this bitch in six months. Because I think this is very, obviously there is the civil rights component of this, but it's also a criticism of, like, if you're someone who's against Columbus Day, this movie is for you. (laughs) Because this is very much that Manifest Destiny it's the white man's job to rule over <laughs> these people who don't know any better. Because these could be Native Americans. These mm-hmm. could be, you know, obviously African Americans, you know, slaves. Whatever read you want to put on this movie, it works for.
2: Put that on the poster. If you don't like Christopher Columbus Day, watch Planet of the Fuck
1: <laughs> Christopher Columbus. It's <laughs> um, that middle finger, yeah.
2: Definitely, yeah. And don't forget, too, I mean, we... We tend to forget that 68, we were right in the brunt, right in the thick of a civil rights movement as well. So I do think this was very timely, and I think that's a lot of the reason why
1: it was as successful as it was. Yeah. And there are scenes that directly parallel real life. Yeah, things you would for see, sure. Things you would see on the news, and I think that was very purposeful on the part of Serling and, mm-hmm. and everyone involved. But I also think that's why this movie has had the longevity it has. Is It did what I think science fiction is best at in any capacity is using – the future to tell a story about the present or the past, you know, be critical uh, or reflective of what's happening, because that's what a lot of science fiction is. Definitely. And I think you say that's what good science
2: fiction does. And and you're absolutely right about that. But what it also does too is if you had no idea about the civil rights movement, it doesn't take away from your enjoyment of this movie. You can still get sucked into these characters, but I can just think, see myself, you know, if I was an African American going to the movies in 1968, this movie would fucking speak to me. And, And, um, I think Serling had, he had a knack for that on the Twilight Zone. Watch a lot of those Twilight Zone episodes. There is a lot of social commentary in those episodes. And, you know, whether, A lot of what he wrote lasted, I don't know, but I have a feeling that a lot of this, and of course the novel has a lot to do with that too, but I think a lot of this has to do with what Sterling brought to it.
1: There's a lot here that is carried over from his ideas and his perspective, so his presence is still here, even if he's not the sole credited writer. Just as they're about to make some kind of a move to communicate, they are interrupted by apes on horseback who round them up like cattle, like slaves. For a movie that's not very action-heavy, quote-unquote, per se, this is a very well-constructed, chaotic, panic-inducing type of, of sequence for a movie of this caliber.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of anxiety <laughs> I was feeling as I was watching this and seeing, seeing the way these horses are going and seeing the way all of this, like this had to be just a nightmare to direct. Now, not to mention you had all these makeup effects to worry about as well. You know, does all of this look good? And you mentioned they spend $5 million on this. I, I think a lot of that has to do with scenes like this, you know, and I, and I think, you know, what the director brought to this, what Schaefer brought to this is just a remarkable display of just chaotic, yet very constructed filmmaking. And this is this is a very well done scene that really sucks you in like, oh shit, like what is going to happen? Obviously we know the end game, but what exactly happens? I I like the way this is constructed.
0: I do too. And to me it feels like a cattle roundup, you know, and it's just humans are the cattle. And I really like that it just Mm -hmm. feels just angry and violent and just such a flip i mean everything has been turned on its head from the moment you hit play but this is suddenly you're just like what the fuck is going on you know Mm
1: -hmm. that's a perfect way to introduce the apes where they are they are the hunters they are the dominant species and they have no qualms about murdering humans who they look down upon in, in this society so taylor's captured one of them is shot in the back of the head and killed and the third one is presumably caught as well, as we'll find out later on. So they're all rounded up, but not before Taylor is shot in the neck, which renders him unable to speak for the next thirty minutes of the movie, which is a great which is a great device in its own right. You could argue it's too coincidental, but the big line of this movie would it work if he could speak? Yeah, I yeah, think great it works point. really well. Taking
0: his ability to talk, to just taking that completely out of it, your concentration has to turn away from the star of the film because the only thing he's able to do at that point is put up a performance with his body language in his eyes. So you are forced to concentrate on the real star of this film, which is now the apes. Like from the moment they're introduced, you just silenced your lead character and damn, that's brilliant.
2: Yeah. And apparently Harrison himself was sick on this day, and, and I and I don't think he wanted this particular take used, but it, it it works. It really works for the situation he finds himself in. And you're absolutely right, Adam. You're you're forced to concentrate on him, and the fact that you do is what makes it as powerful as it is.
1: Also, one of the most blatant statements of literally taking away the voice of the oppressed.
0: And this is when some of those you, you get the race thing starting right here. I feel. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad to a point that I didn't see this when I would not have appreciated or understood some of the care that's put into it. I didn't know that he was silenced. I had no idea this type of stuff happened. And I'm so glad this stuff I never knew about because it really worked for me in this viewing.
1: Yeah, it's funny how a movie with an ending this notorious, so many of the plot details, people unfamiliar with the movie have no clue about. There's still that discovery aspect, even if you know the resolution. Taylor's Hmm. not unconscious, and he awakens to being experimented upon by two scientists, Galen and animal psychologist Zira, played by Kim Hunter, who would go on to star in quite a few of these movies, as will someone else in this movie. Very famous actress at the time, because she was the, speaking of Marlon Brando, she was the Stella in the Streetcar Named Desire movie.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, she is kind of the her and... Someone else are kind of the MVPs as far as actors in this movie. As far as convincingly playing apes, they can act through the makeup without having their performances or their expressions be hindered. It's really impressive to still watch almost 50 years later.
2: Yes, positively. I I worked on a movie where we had like a small zombie scene and, you know, me and the director took the actors out and we taught them how to walk like zombies. We were able to do that because we had so many zombie films at that point, not to mention Walking Dead was huge around that time to build upon. And we could teach them how to do that. How do you teach people how to act like apes? And in 1968, you didn't have too much footage and things. And I think her and I know exactly what else you're talking about do such a good job of doing that. And not to mention, you know, you, they're not taking away any of their human qualities per se, but they're making themselves into apes with human emotions. And that that is a really, really tough thing to do. And, yeah, she is the
0: MVP of this for sure. And not only that, the performance shines through the makeup and the prosthetics. So amazing job on that. The vocal work and the quality of the performance that they get. And I I I mean, ADR happened, but probably not to the level that it had at this point. Because there's no way they that the sounds recorded very well through all that. But the way that it was, those sounds are edited back in, and the vocal performances really help shine through. But just you know, the way that the eyes will widen up and the heads will tilt, they do a really smart thing of keeping the budget on the apes that you need to. If, if you pause and look in the background, you're going to see a whole lot of Sears catalog ape masks going on mm-hmm. in, the, in the back of a lot of scenes. But it's okay because you don't pay attention to those and you sure as hell didn't have 4K VHS tapes even mm-hmm. when this started coming out. But the work on Zira specifically is so beautifully done, even to this day.
2: Yeah, I thought about that as I was watching this because I have stars. And all five of these original movies are on that Stars app. And I was watching this thinking, you know, I don't think these movies were made to watch like this. (laughs) (laughs) And you're thinking about it. And, yeah, I I think we talked about that when we did Texas Chainsaw, Matt. Like, these movies were not meant to be seen that way. But it doesn't matter because you're you're sucked right into the moment of what these actors are doing and what the makeup is telling you.
1: Yeah. And to Adam's point, when you're in the big crowd shots later on, you can tell the apes that are. You know, basically a latex mask. in that Oh, it. yeah. It's, it's all about thrifty filmmaking, where they prioritize the ones that you need to care about for for the purposes of the movie. We're also introduced to Dr. Zaius, who is the orangutan superior, basically the leader of the theocratic society, where he openly treats the humans as vermin and are there for scientific experiment, experimentation. Now, if any of you have ever watched the TV show Bewitched or know anything about it, this is Samantha Stevens' father on that show. Oh, no shit, I didn't know that. I mean, he's technically the villain of the movie, but as we'll find out, he's got a point. Yeah, I, I think he's
2: he's looked at as the villain in the beginning, but eventually ends up being kind of the voice of reason,
1: <laughs> in a way. Yeah, he's like the, uh, don't say I didn't warn you, but like that's basically his. <laughs> exactly. That yeah.
0: More of an antique and just the antagonist than a villain.
1: Yeah, and that's what this franchise really has done in every version, is that your villains or the antagonists have a very clear rationale justification for why they feel the way they do. Because we'll talk about this in the Burton film. We'll talk about this with the, I guess you call it the Caesar, Andy Serkis trilogy. You know, they do some interesting stuff. Taylor is put in a cage, you know, along with every other human that was rounded up, with a captive female named Nova, which will be referenced in future movies. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of callbacks that are used in almost every incarnation of this franchise, with the sole purpose of mating, which kind of is interesting when you think about the apes. They're looking at the species that they have captured, sole purpose of breeding, uh, which is, you know, that's also a direct reference to slavery.
0: Yes, but it's also what these astronauts were planning to do themselves. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. And interesting note about Nova. I, we mentioned the Bond franchise. I think author V. Jacobs wanted Ursula Andress for this. They tested her and he really wanted her. But guess what? This Linda Harrison was the second wife of Richard Zanuck, the producer of this who will go on to produce Jaws. And guess who got the role? <laughs> Yeah. But she's fine. I think she does a wonderful job here. You know, I don't think Ursula really Andress. We mentioned when we did Bond that you know she could have brought anything different. I would have been interested to see her in monkey makeup. That would have been weird.
1: Fun fact: there was someone else who was involved, going to be involved with the Bond franchise, who was going to be in this movie that we'll talk about momentarily. Uh, I don't know. Oh, how, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, good point. I yeah. don't know how common knowledge it is, but Zira relatively sympathetic to Taylor. You know, she calls him bright eyes, so she doesn't look at him as just an animal. Like she recognizes there's some kind of connection. But Taylor's there to, at this point, to breed and be subjugated to almost translating stuff that was shown on TVs at the time being sprayed with the hose later on. You know, that's a direct, if you were watching CBS at the time, you know, you look at some of the race riots and things of that sort mm-hmm. you would, you would see that constantly.
2: Yeah, me and uh, Jen are watching the series of documentaries on certain decades on HBO right now. And uh, in the 60s, they show that, you know, and it's, it's hard to not see that parallel. You're right. It's not subtle, but it's just like I said, if I was watching this and I was a minority back in 1968, this would speak to me.
1: Well, it would speak to you, but. Taylor would not be able to speak. <laughs> okay. At least for the next at least for the next 30 minutes. Yeah. Or so. Like it's a long time before he, he's able to, to speak. But he does manage to steal a pencil and notepad from Zira to communicate, which Zaius looks at as just a trick. Like in the same way that you teach your dog how to grab a stick. Of course he can write. The only source of communication that Taylor has is looked down upon as a rudimentary thing. It's invalid. In the same way that you, if you were an educated black man in the 1800s, it didn't matter. We're also introduced to Dr. Cornelius, who is Zira's fiancé, played by the incomparable Roddy McDowell, who is probably the person most associated with this overall franchise, because he's in four of the five. He plays multiple characters. Great actor. Love him in Fright Night. I think that's something people, a lot of people know him from. Yes. Uh,
2: a series I want to do so bad.
1: The same ahead. way that Charlton Heston was a huge movie star, Ryan McDowell was a huge star on television at the time. Mm-hmm. Like he was a sort of a big get as well when you look at a lot of the stuff he was doing. And Adam, we got another Batman alumni in this uh, production finally because yeah, it's about that, yeah, actually two times over because he was on the Adam West show and he was Mad Hatter in the animated series. This part was originally going to be played by James Brolin, which is the Bond connection I was alluding to earlier. Mm hmm. That poor man. He could have been Bond, could have been in Planet of the Apes, but hey, he got the TV show Hotel.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and his son became a respected actor.
1: Yes. But they are the two voices of reason, and they're the outcasts in and of their own society because they don't subscribe to the theocracy of, like, you know, their version of God created apes. They are the stand ins for the evolutionists in human society. So zeus learns of his ability to speak and of reason, and he orders Taylor to be emasculated eventually, but Zira and Cornelius sort of feel bad for Taylor, and they believe there's more to his story. So they take him to their house, and he shows or tries to convince them that he came from another planet, as he mentions, by writing, and he proves, tries to prove by making a paper airplane to their utter amazement. Because flight is not something that exists in this society.
2: Yeah, talk about primitive.
1: Yeah, and this is why the great gifts, too, of Cornelius rolling his eyes. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I use this all the fucking time. Zira protests Zeus's argument that he is invalid, he's vermin, and should be castrated. Which leads to a chase scene, which is probably the standout action set piece of the movie. It's basically the non-comedic version of the Adam West bomb scene from the 66th Batman movie. Because he keeps, he keeps running into different people. Like, he'll turn a corner and there's three apes staring at him. He walks into a church. There's a kid who's like, look, a human. And everyone's utterly terrified. You know, he's getting apples thrown at him. Um, mm-hmm. Like, he's having to navigate for soul primitive survival what i love about
0: this and it it happens like right in the scene before too is it's showing it's that black mirror thing of it's showing us how we would react because at this point we are the apes and this is how we would react in that situation and i absolutely love that all the way down to the line well human see human do you know (laughs) it's it's just it is perfect when you look at it that way and sci-fi and eddie sci-fi should make you look at yourself and should make you look at society and it does even when he's running through in this action scene and the church and the kids it's just like oh my god they
1: nail it Mm -hmm. taylor's captured and we get the iconic line reading of take your stinking paws off me you damn dirty ape which makes the entire society gasp because they they see that a human can talk
2: Yeah, this would be equivalent as if we capture an ape and it talked. I mean, you got to put yourself in their shoes, you know. This movie does just such a remarkable inverse of societies. And if you think about it, like, this would be shocking to them. And my God, did this line become just, and still to this day, I mean, this is used almost everywhere.
0: It's a remarkable scene. We had news stories and documentaries on Coco the Gorilla that did sign language. Yes. You
1: know what this reminds me of, too? Like, this is when, when they capture everyone in Return of the Jedi. And those, because th- oh. whenever I see those nets, that's all I think of. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. the apes are like the apes are what the Ewoks should have been. Let's not have that discussion again. No, sure at least these apes aren't fucking saying <laughs> "nymnub" and shit. Oh my god! <laughs> move on. Well, I can't <laughs> move on. We got eight more movies to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, ten, and a TV show. Like we didn't mention that this series spawned TV shows, cartoon. Um. There's a great documentary Mm -hmm. called Behind the Planet of the Apes. I have the box set on DVD of the original five. It's its own disc. Yeah. Like, it was a big TV special. But, yeah, this is a great line. You know, I love how this is for the apes, like, finding out for us if aliens existed, where it changes your entire foundation of your place in the universe and your hierarchy, your structure, to the point where we go to the courts. There's now a hearing to determine whether or not Taylor is worthy of any rights. And this is the we talked about reflecting civil rights. This is a direct parallel to the Dred Scott case, if you know your history. Direct parallel
2: to that. And also, Michael Wilson was blacklisted for being a communist in the McCarthy era. And this is kind of his take on what he was going through at the time, too. So remarkable parallels every which way here.
0: What I love to the way that this is done and just how stark a reminder it is to the civil rights at the time, the ruling class, the religious and political leaders are light colored apes. Yeah, good point. They're, they're, they're the orangutans where all the soldiers, all of the foot soldiers, Zero and Cornelius, they're black. You, you literally have a black and white, you know, society in this movie that's already talking about our System and it's just it's one more level to how smart this thing really is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and, and this is sort of borrowed from the book where there is like a caste system of, mm-hmm. of the ape system where the gorillas are the you know the military, orangutans are the Bible thumping evangelical Republicans who want to keep everyone else ignorant and down, and you got the chimpanzees who are the scientists and the doctors. If you have any question about evolution or human dignity the the orangutans are the one to shut that shit down so not only is taylor being questioned cornelius and zira are being tried for heresy so there's a whole thing about you know speaking of star trek this is sort of the measure of a man episode in tng with data where they're talking about if androids are worthy of rights and it doesn't end so well because they find no reason to give in this argument of You know, you have the main ape, the Justice of the Peace, is Brooks from Shawshank Redemption, if people don't know, who's also a big star at the time. You know, speaking of Thing from Another World, he's in that. But it is that thing of religion being used to keep people ignorant. So there's a lot that this movie is is projecting beyond just the the racial component. There's a theological discussion it's having as well. Taylor, Mm -hmm. you know, part of his defense is saying, you know, I came here with two other people, which I'm glad the movie remembers this. Because we've seen one RDB taxidermy, they lobotomized the third one. So there's like that red scare conspiracy element of burning evidence to save your beliefs. Yeah,
2: and you know what? I didn't know that Heston had come to this planet with other astronauts. I thought he was here by himself because of the reputation of this movie. And so when I see what they've done to his his compadres here, I was just like, oh wow, that's fucking. Again, G-rated movie, but I had no idea that this, is, this was going to be their fate and that they were even in this movie. So, yeah, they pulled the wall over my eyes for
1: this. So it's been a long time since I've seen it, but isn't in the Burton film, Mark Wahlberg's the only astronaut?
2: Uh, dude, I, I couldn't tell you. It's been over 20 yeah. years since I've seen it, too. Yeah,
1: because yeah. I, I think that's why people are shocked that there's multiple astronauts. But they basically, you know, the apes burn the evidence. You know, he has no leg to stand on, so... Zayas gives him one last chance to confess in private because he tells him, I think you're either from some tribe that we don't know about and what they refer to as the Forbidden Zone, which is a great little nugget that carries throughout the rest of the movie. You know, what's beyond the border? What are they keeping secret? He says, all right, if you don't confess, I'm going to lobotomize you and castrate you in six hours. So tick tock. Now that Taylor can speak, he confides in Nova about how on my planet, you know, someone like you I would hook up with. And, and this is sort of the only critique I have of this movie is that this movie could function without Nova. It really can. Yeah, what the hell is she even doing here? Especially because, like, Cornelius is there like, really, you, you want us what do you mean you rescued her too? And it's not like she learns how to speak or anything in this movie or they even do anything in the third act. She's just, there, she's just fucking there because she's hot. It's got one of the
0: most uncomfortable lines that's uttered, and I can't remember if it's here or a little bit later, but he talks about how she's going to be our new Eve with our hot and eager help. Yes. And I was just like,
1: ew, come on, somebody yeah. wrote
0: that, man. That just feels, I mean, it feels Hollywood,
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah, if it wasn't for Ugh. Zira, this movie would be looked at as very misogynistic.
2: For sure. <laughs> and, yeah, I've been complimenting a lot of them writing here, but you're right, Adam. Some of the dialogue is pretty cringeworthy, especially looking at it now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it's really the only criticism I have of this movie in any, in any capacity. And I actually think this type of character is done better later on in, in movies to come. Taylor's eventually rescued by Lucius, who is Zira's nephew, first time we're seeing him. So he knocks out the guard with this um, fake letter of release. We, we learned that the <laughs> apes have their own version of a zoo, which is pretty funny. Because, uh, like, really, this character is the only levity that this movie has. Uh, not that this yeah. movie is, like really relentlessly heavy. I mean it is from a social statement type, but it's not I wouldn't call this like depressing or browbeating you with pretentiousness. Like it's not that. Actually I'll talk about that science fiction when we get to certain Star Trek movies. But they they rescue Taylor, but he says, bring Nova, to which Lucius should have said why. But they free Taylor and Nova and they take them to the outskirts of the forbidden zone which is this portion outside of ape city where the ship actually crashed because part of his meeting earlier on was a map so we see like the boundaries of this society so it's good that we we've established some kind of context but they mentioned that ape law has ruled it out of bounds for centuries because something happened.
2: Matt, what did you think about the ape society that we're seeing here? This is just really well done. I like the sets that they're doing here. You know, they built these sets. You know, they're going to use these sets in later films as well. But I I think the way they integrate this society into this movie is pretty well done.
1: Well, fun fact, they use sets from a Barbara Streisand movie. I, I don't remember the name, but I remember that, like, fun fact on the making of. I like how the society, you learn everything about it through what you're shown. There's not a huge exposition dump where Zero talks about, mm-hmm. you know, 200 years ago, our forefathers did this and that, like so many modern movies would do. I'm wondering
2: if those new ape movies do that, too.
1: We'll save that for a couple months down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like how everything is shown through action. The group arrives at the cave that Cornelius mentioned he found some artifacts from during his last archaeological expedition, but Zaeus shut that shit down. Speaking of the devil, he actually shows up with an army. So we're realizing that he is very headstrong on making sure they don't discover what's in that cave or beyond the border. Taylor holds them off by threatening to shoot Zaius. He holds him at gunpoint, which it, it's weird seeing Charlton Heston hold a rifle, considering that he would find yes. he would found the NRA twenty plus. <laughs> I thought of that too. It's hard not to cold
0: dead hands, you damn dirty
1: idiot. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> But he says, "Tell your army to to back off. We're going in this cave. I need to see for myself, like what's in there." is so like, "All right, I'll go in because I'll prove your theories wrong." So they go inside the cave, and you know they tell Short Round and Solid to wait outside. <laughs> like I half expect they did a Jones to be here looking for artifacts too because we just did that series. So Cornelius is walking them through, and he mentions, "Well, I found all these artifacts at different levels, and as it's revealed, the artifacts are things that our human society were." using, like, dentures. It's like a pacemaker valve, spectacles. So Heston, Taylor is saying, yeah, this is the stuff that made us humans weak. We've sort of evolved upon because we're supposed to be the dominant species. And Zayas has rationale for every single thing, where he's like, you know, that could have been planted or could have been just dropped off. But the fly in the ointment is when they find a doll that has a voice box because humans are not supposed to be able to speak.
2: Yeah, this was
1: creepy. I think Rod Serling... Took the talking Tina doll from the Twilight Zone.
0: You're not kidding. Just, yeah, that's what I thought of, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Buried it in the desert.
0: I remember my little sister having a doll that when it laid down, its eyes closed. And then when you raise it up, the eyes opened automatically and it made a sound. And it was Holy the creepiest freaking thing as a kid. <laughs> this brought back
1: all those horror memories. Oh, my God. Ugh. Yeah, dolls are not my friend in any capacity. Zayus mentions that, yeah, I've always... Sory sort of unveils... The big secret that he's known about a human society predating apes, but has kept it secret. Now, that's where the, you know, sort of the McCarthyism conspiracy component comes into full display here.
0: It's the religious. Yes, we know the earth isn't only 3000 years old.
1: Yeah, we know it's mm-hmm. We know the earth is not flat.
0: It's all that. I mean, it. you know, you have the race element. You have the caste element. You have all that. And, you, and this is something that's really dangerous to do back then, and it's just as so dangerous to do now, is admitting that religion lies to keep people in their place and to keep them, you know, that same system going. And it sure as hell does it right here, just as good as anybody has ever done.
1: From, in a movie starring the guy who played Moses. <laughs> 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 and Ben-Hur, which is rooted in some Christianity in there. Zaius also mentions that you can look for your answers, but you're you're not going to like what you find. So they go back outside. They find Lucius has been captured. Taylor makes a demand that I'm going to go beyond the forbidden zone, take Nova with me, tie Zaius up. And as he leaves, we realize that Zaius had no intention of keeping his word about letting the others go, and he says, I'm still going to charge them for heresy. So I like that there's still this beyond the ending which we'll talk about momentarily the apes do not get off scot-free and there's still like consequences for them too like it's not a happy ending for either party
0: it's yep. not our hero charlton heston wins and the bad guy's defeated like it's not that clean and i like that like zeus isn't defeated and goes off holding his head no no no
2: Yeah, you know, a lot of those Twilight Zone episodes, I I hate making that comparison, but we have the writer on this project, but a lot of those Twilight Zone episodes really ended on a real pessimistic note. And I I think, yeah, you're right, Adam, like the good guy is not winning here. And I think that's, again, you're playing with expectations of the audience and and it's doing it in a non insulting way, which I like. And this is a hero who is just trying to get the fuck away from these things. And they are not letting him.
0: That's so why I love the writing of those Twilight Zone episodes, you know, and, and realize that Serling wrote all of those, which is just ridiculous. But, you know, when I woke up on the weekend and when they're having a marathon, I'll sit and I'll just keep going until I, you know, don't because they're all great. Black Mirror holds the same type of fascination to me. You know, when you look at yourself and you look at your society and it makes you uncomfortable, that's a good thing.
1: So Taylor and Nova follow the shoreline on horseback and eventually... They stumble upon an image that everybody knows, even if you haven't seen the movie, of the remnants of the Statue of Liberty, which is shot from behind at first. You don't see it on full display. And we get the reveal that the alien planet that they thought they were on was Earth the whole time, and humanity blew itself up in a post-apocalyptic nuclear war, proving zeus is warning about not liking what you'll find as Taylor is left in distraught, saying that we blew it all to hell and we deserve to be damned.
2: It took me a bit to realize what was going on here, because I think I was playing on a lot with, with, with what Burton does with this years later. So I was like, did they copy the Statue of Liberty and have it here? Like, I, I I had no idea exactly what I was seeing for a bit until I stopped and kind of thought about it. And it really is a powerful image, even if you know it. You know, just the context of what it's being shown here is just amazing. And it's this is I believe this is a real sterling touch. This was not in the book, correct?
1: No. uh, The planet in Planet of the Apes is an entirely different planet than Earth in the book.
2: Okay, this is amazing. Yeah, this is this is just real, real brilliant. Turn it on its head, filmmaking. It's a twist, and Matt, we talked about this so much when we did Shyamalan, It's a twist without insulting the audience, like Shyamalan did with a few of his movies. And and and, and you know, twist endings owe a lot to this. And it's just so amazingly done. Oh man, also, I knew it was coming, but it still took me by surprise.
0: It also feeds into the fears of the time. We're post World War II, but we're right in the middle of so other, so many other conflicts. Good point. You know, we're yeah. just pre-doing the Cold War, but there's still the thought of the atomic bomb, the hydrogen bombs, and the just the race proliferation that every major superpower was going towards. So, yeah, there was that giant fear of we are going to blow ourselves up, and this pretty much says, yep, we did, and we blew ourselves up, and we didn't evolve coming out of it. The Missing Link evolved instead, and – Is it for the better or not, that this time humans are the apes? It's just one more layer to this thoughtful cake of Mm -hmm. sci-fi.
1: There's also the revelation that everything Taylor said about humanity in the opening, he's ultimately proven right on. I mean, look, there's so many good twist endings in movies, but there's also so many bad ones. I think this is the gold standard for, like, twist endings, because there's also the important thing of nothing that happens you can believe as, like, a contradiction or pulling something out of its ass, because there's nothing to say that their ship didn't just get caught in a time paradox and got blown off course or something. There's no ambiguity to this at all.
2: You are absolutely right. Nothing that happens in this movie negates this particular moment. And those are that's the brilliance of twist endings. That's why the sixth sense works so well and it's why the village's twist ending is so piss poor. It's not pulling it out of out of nowhere. We can watch this movie again and see, you know what? I didn't see it, but now that I know the ending, I can see the way this, this is developing. Just brilliantly done.
1: Because there is a big distinction between a twist ending and an ambiguous ending, like Inception. Mm-hmm. And Inception is the big ambiguous ending that we've had for the last, you know, 10, 15 years. There's no ambiguity here. Like, this is a the Serling touch of, yeah, we suck. And speaking of Tim Burton, this is also the message of Mars Attacks <laughs> at the end of the day, where humanity <laughs> sucks and deserves to be wiped off the face of the Earth like cattle. And the Martians are there to call the herd. And the movie does not end on a giant score beat or a bump, 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 you know, any of those things. It's his reaction and you cut the credits with no music. Yeah. It's it's early yeah. really even- really saying, think about this. Exactly.
2: And we, you know what? You mentioned no music. We haven't talked about the music here. The music here has been done by Jerry Goldsmith, one of his first scores, I believe. I mean, I do know it was nominated for an Academy Award. Why? I have no idea. This is really weird cacophony of instruments being done here. It sounds a lot like the beginning of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you basically have people hitting pans for five, six minutes at a time. I, I do think the score enhances a lot of what's on the screen, but at the same time, it's not anything that catches my ear.
0: It's, I mean, I was struck by the name, you know, in the opening credits, but throughout, I was just like, there's nothing that strikes me as amazing or not. It's a good score, you know, but sometimes that's what you need is you need a score that does not detract from what's going on. It's fine. It's good. It does its job. If you didn't put Jerry Goldsmith's name at the front of it, it never would have struck me that it was his, but it's also a much younger Goldsmith that I relate to. So, you know, it's a good score. It's fine, but it it's not what's memorable of the movie for me.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's important, but it's not essential. The power of this movie lies in the writing and the world building and the suspension of disbelief that you are looking at fully functioning, humanoid apes speaking English. Uh, but that does it for 1968's Planet of the Apes. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give this landmark movie? I'm going to go to Garrett. Why don't you go first?
2: All right. Coming in, I literally didn't know what I was going to score this. It's one of those things where I was kind of dreading watching this, not because it's an older movie. I love older movies. It's just because I think a lot of what it had to I thought at the time, a lot of what it had to say doesn't resonate anymore. Guess what? It resonates now more than any time. This movie is, I'm not going to call it timeless because there are things about it that do date it, but... There are things about it that I watched and I I thought this was... I'll go ahead and say it. I thought this was a better version of 2001. I am not a huge fan of 2001. I I think this has a lot to say about society. This has a lot to say about dictatorship. This has a lot to say about being integrated into a society. This has a lot to say about racism. This has a lot to say about a lot. But it's also sci-fi with people in apes costumes. And those apes costumes in 1968, these are... Again, I won't say they're seamless, but They are so well done for the time. This was a movie that was route with problems. But what I will say is I think... A lot of what happens on screen stays on screen. And if I were to see this in a theater, I'd come out, I would think about it for a while. And I can see why something like this would launch a franchise. Because I think they took something like this and they had a lot more to say. Now, this wasn't meant as a franchise. This was meant as a standalone movie. And you know what? If I had stopped with this movie, I haven't seen any other ones yet. But if I stopped with this, I'd be happy. I think this is a very well done, very well-resonated film. The performances... Look, we've had our say about Charlton Heston. I think the Charlton Heston of 1968 is not the Charlton Heston from the Ten Commandments, but he is still bringing the gravitas that you look for in a role like this, because this is somebody who thinks he is higher than all societies being brought into something where he is being forced to look at himself and say, I need to integrate in order to fit in and to actually live. There are things about this that I mean, like I said, I've been watching these decades documentaries on HBO, and my goodness, like this would mesh very well with that. Even with all that being said, you know, my Rod Serling bias notwithstanding, I think this is a pretty enjoyable watch. It does take a little bit to kick in. You know, we mentioned it takes about 25, 30 minutes for us to actually see the apes. But I was enjoying getting to know the characters before all of that happens. And that is the brilliance of a Twilight Zone episode. That is the brilliance of this movie. I'm not going to give it a perfect score. I want to go too lower. It is an 8 out of 10 for me, but that is about two points higher than I was expecting going into this series. I found this to be an enjoyable watch, and I will watch it again.
1: Wow, pleasant surprise for a movie that Garrett has not seen in a very long time. So I've never seen it. This was my first and second watch. I can't believe so. both of you have never seen this movie. Like, that ble- <laughs> <laughs> just blow, it just blows my fucking mind. Like, I can, understand the, I can understand the sequels, and I can understand not having seen the new ones, but to not see, like, to me, this is the equivalent of not having seen Jaws.
2: Well, yeah, and you know what? And you know what's weird about that is I have seen p- bits and pieces of it. There were parts where they're in the nets and things that kind of flash back to when I was a kid and my dad would watch it. My dad loved these movies. You know, I told you, he dragged my mom to this movie, and he enjoyed all five of these movies. And I remember bits and pieces, but never saw it all the way through.
0: And I think that's why. I think because we saw it parodied everywhere that you just don't go back and watch it because of that. hmm Yeah. All
1: right. Well, fair statement. So... Defense rests. Adam, your turn. (laughs) (laughs) Eight trial.
0: You know, I thought the only reason that we were going to have to get through these was to get to the new movies. Garrett and I, I think, are going to have a decent amount to say when we get to Tim Burton, because we saw that in theaters. And that was highly anticipatory at that time. When we get to the Andy Serkis trilogy, quadrilogy, sextet, whatever it's going to be, you know, that's kind of the new generations. So this was a series that stood before our time and it was just always there. It was that oldie sci-fi. And I just never got around to it because I felt like I knew it. Sitting down to watch this movie, I was like, oh, fine. You know what? Maybe it'll be better than King. let me at least get through some of these. Um,
2: wow, jab.
0: And, yeah, it was. <laughs> and I am so glad that I sat and watched this film. I'm so glad that I didn't see it when I was a youth and might have been – laughing at it or a little more jaded i'm glad that i can look at charleston heston be in one of the most woke sci-fi movies that exists without even a hint of irony (laughs) when you look at social commentary if they were to do this in this type of form today you would have articles written on every extreme right and extremely left website praising it or blasting because of how of what it does instead this movie just does it It does it with good writing. It does it with great acting for the most part, you know, and most of that great acting being done behind prosthetics and masks and eye black and lips that are moving that are not even their own with amazing voice acting being dubbed in the story, the parallels to real world, the, the chase system, the religious allegories and look at organized religion and, and racism is kind of astounding because as much as you get that in sci-fi, it's not always done this well, and it's not always done this well in a movie that's looked at 55 years later. Charlton Heston, he's Charlton Heston. Part of the time, I'm really liking him. Part of him, I'm like, okay, that's over-the-top, Chuck. But that is what it is. Garrett's point, yeah, the first 25, 30 minutes of this film, it takes a while to get going. One of my notes was, so we just filmed him walking through a desert and kind of clipped it together, huh? You <laughs> get a time with they're just <laughs> walking through the desert, like freaking R2-D2 and C-3PO, just, ah, oh, we're waiting for shit to happen. But this is a brilliant look at society, not only in the 60s, 50s, but today. Take the apes out of it, and this screenplay would work. Put the apes into it, and it's an amazing movie that I think stands up just as much today as it did then. I think Zara absolutely steals the show. I fall in love with her and I can't believe, like it makes sense to what happens, I think with Taylor later, but yeah, I'm a huge fan of this film. I, Can't believe, and I'm glad I have it written down first, but I have the exact same score as Garrett. I have an 8 on 10. And if you would have told me that I was going to go into this movie and I was going to walk out of it giving it an 8, I would have told you you were out of your 8-loving mind. (laughs) But I'm so glad that I was surprised with how much I adore this film. 8 on 10.
2: And we didn't even talk about that kissing scene, but I had no idea that was from this
0: movie. <laughs> I didn't either. And it's yeah. my I had a note on that, and it felt so much like what you get with Star Trek. Like, it's just, yep. there's something important about it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to realize that it's there. Yeah, for sure.
1: See, the fact that you complained about people walking in landscapes makes me very excited to talk about Lord of the Rings later. This time. <laughs> I was just thinking the same exact thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Especially the Hobbit movies, we all have a yeah. lot to say. But look, obviously of the three of us, I'm the fan of this franchise because I've actually seen them. So I win by default. But I think the sign of a of a great movie is when you revisit something after a considerable portion of time, you feel like you're watching it for the very first time. And that's kind of the thought I had as I sat down to watch this again, where so much of the happenings of this movie did not trigger thoughts in my mind of knowing what was gonna happen next. And, yeah, as you guys mentioned, there's a lot here. This is a movie that hits you on all fronts when it comes to commentary. Sometimes it's more direct. Sometimes it's more reflective of what was at the time. Some of it was peeking back the curtain for decades, borderline centuries. But it was also commentating on the future concerns and trepidations of the time period, especially with the ending. So I do put this on the, like, if you gave me a Mount Rushmore of science fiction movies that everyone should see, that giant ape head of Dr. Zayas and all rationale would definitely be on there. Like, I think this is a celebrated landmark. It's deserving of its reputation. And I understand why it's stuck with people and spawned what it did. So my score is a little bit higher than you guys. I can't go a 10 because Nova just... It's a black hole. She's yeah. she's nothing. So I can't give it a 10. But, you know, this is... For science fiction, especially around this time, and even in the decades that have followed, it doesn't get much better than this as far as thought-provoking, making a statement type of science fiction... This is as good as it gets, so I have a 9 written down. That's all I'm going to stick with.
2: I was not expecting a 25 total score on this when we started recording this. My bright eyes have been opened.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we've we've set the bar very high, as did this franchise. And nowadays you would say, of course they made a sequel. And of course, much like modern movies, it came out two years later. It was fast tracked, as were all of the sequels. You know, they all came out a year apart, 70, 71, 72, 73. So they, oh, wow, that is saw level. Yeah. They, they, God you damn. know, they, yeah. they turned one out every year and we'll talk about the first one that took two years to make beneath the planet of the apes. So I have seen all of these movies. You guys have not, but I'll ask the question, do either of you know anything about this movie that we'll be talking about next week?
0: immediately when it was done knowing that one that we had these to go through but i was so enraptured first thing i did was look up trailers so i watched the trailer for it and it, the original trailer not anything recut or fan done but i wanted to know what was next so i've seen that i am absolutely intrigued by at least that original 19 it would have been what a 70 trailer uh, that was done and that's my only knowledge so far
2: So I have zero knowledge of what happens in this particular movie. I will watch that trailer, too, Adam. But I do know there are a couple of these movies that kind of to go off the rails would be too strong a phrase. But I know I know a couple of them get really, really weird. I am just going to assume that they don't go that way with this first sequel. Hell, I don't even know if Charlton Heston's even back. So I am definitely intrigued to see where the story goes, especially since this was such a strong standalone movie. I don't know if they're going to be going off, the heel, off their heels, you know, not really having anything to say just to kind of put something on the screen kind of like they do nowadays. I'm very curious. I'll just say that. I'm very, very curious. And yes, I will watch that trailer as well.
1: So would you say the sequels have a reputation for going bananas? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) I take the free throws when I can get them. Yeah, I do know a
2: couple of them go way crazy.
1: I will say this is a franchise that does not make the same movie two times in a row. Oh, interesting. Which is, I think, the sign of a good franchise. I I like when they can do something different all these movies do they will borrow elements from each other you could argue some of them are kind of like remakes or retellings of similar subject matter but you know the next one there's a lot to talk about but i am not going to say anything because i want both of you to go into all these movies as cold as possible because i'm surprised you had such a great reaction to the first one i'm curious to see because all these movies have a certain reputation about them from the fans
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i'm curious to see you guys being unfamiliar what is your perspective versus that
2: yeah, then that's my plan, you know. And, and the reason for that is there aren't too many franchises that I can do this for. I mean, I, I did it for Harry Potter. You know, I went into the, every single one of those as cold as I could go. It's a really different feeling to be coming at it from this end where I, I literally have no idea where they're going to go.
0: Agreed. I'm looking forward to the point where some of us start turning on each other like these apes do because I know yeah. it'll
1: happen. <laughs> oh, I know for a fact it's going to happen just because we're us. Is it going to happen in these first five, or is it, do you
2: think it's going to happen in the next set?
1: I'll keep my mouth shut. Okay. I'll do All like right. Charlton Hesse give myself a tracheotomy so I can't fall that <laughs> the guy from Saw 5. But until next week when we talk about Beneath the Planet of the Apes, you are right. I have always known about man. From the podcast, I believe his wisdom must walk hand in hand with his idiocy. Thank you, guys. Thank you, sir. Let me make a last appeal to your reason
0: before we inflict more of this on you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Thank you. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Tell me something, McDonald. Can we make the future what we wish? And if you would be so kind please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice.
2: Aldo was right. War has come.
0: It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts.
2: So many questions I want to ask.
0: And if you enjoyed this review, please head on over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast platform of choice to access our percolated media archives and hear our reviews of other franchises like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Pirates of the Caribbean, the films adapted from the published works of Stephen King, Top Gun, the DC Universe featuring Batman, the Superman DC Universe, and so many more.
1: And so... Demas,
0: we must be patient and wait. The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan.
2: Do they look like just apes to you?
0: Given the power to alter the future, have we the right to use it? The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is edited by Garrett. I'll abide by that, fine. Just hear what I have to say. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is voice narrated by Adam.
1: You just imagine that he hurt you.
0: For the moment, we should follow the example. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. In one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium-sized star, and one of its satellites, a green and insignificant planet, is
1: now dead.
2: If you didn't have those toys, you didn't see this in movies originally, there were no videotapes to go back to back in the 60s and 70s, and so I think that's that's a lot of the reason why this is as big as it was. So I'm going to get that.
1: <laughs> Don't worry, Christian's on it. I can hear him upstairs. Um, okay. <laughs> so, yes. Lost in Space is a good comparison, but, I mean, that still looks better than the one that came out in the 90s.
2: <laughs> which me and Adam saw in theaters. <laughs>
1: yeah, you were the five, peop- two of the five people who saw that movie. <laughs> Taylor holds them off by threatening to shoot Zayus. He holds him at gunpoint, which it, it's weird seeing Charlton Heston hold a rifle, considering. That he would find, yes. he found the NRA twenty plus years.
2: I thought of that too. <laughs>
1: it's it, hard it, it, not I to. Cold dead
0: hands, you damn dirty <laughs> <ass>. idiot. <Right. laughs> yeah.
1: We ever talk about '90s Charlton Heston movies? That's gonna be a whole other conversation. God, oh fuck. The only one I kind of want to talk about is True Lies. That's about it. Because outside of that, most of it was crap. But he says, you know, tell your.
2: I, I do think the score enhances a lot of what's on the screen, but at the same time, it's not anything that catches my ear. Does anyone have any other opinions on the score? Adam? I know Matt. Or you
0: know what? Matt. I'll go. Sorry. I was like, that's yeah. right. <laughs> I don't know why I was paying for Matt on score. Most- <laughs> I know, <right? laughs>
1: Fuck you. <laughs> it's... <laughs>